When I say Columbine, you know exactly what I mean. You know what happened there. You probably know the names of the perpetrators. You might remember the name of a victim or two. So it's probably not surprising if you've been following the story of the teddy bear that went from Illinois to Oklahoma to my little town of Montoursville, Pennsylvania, that Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado was the next stop on its journey. No one at Columbine seems to remember the bear. The only proof I have that it was ever in Colorado are a few archive news stories. According to a Denver Post article from May 7, 1999, the school district planned for the bear to accompany Columbine students to nearby Chatfield High School for the remainder of the school year, then moved to Columbine when it reopened for the following year. It wouldn't actually stay in Colorado long, but more on that later. I said at the beginning of the first episode that I wasn't sure I'd ever find the bear. And although it's a risky strategy to tell you the ending halfway through, I have to say it. If you're hoping for answers, you won't get them. Because as it turned out, I was asking the wrong question all along. I'm Erica Grotto. This is Survived By. This one time, this one time, I don't want to be. By 1999, Frank DeAngelis had spent 20 years at Columbine High School, including three as principal. But his passion was teaching and coaching. He loved interacting with kids, and even when he became an administrator, took on tasks like cafeteria duty. That was where he was supposed to be on April 20th that year when two senior boys opened fire on school grounds. They would murder 12 students and a teacher before taking their own lives. Usually, I'm down in the cafeteria, but that day... I was looking for one of my staff members. He student taught at Columbine. He was uh, on a one-year contract, and I had, we had interviewed him the day before, and I was going to offer him a contract. Well, I could not find him, and finally he walks into my office right before a lunch was starting. We had two lunches. A lunch started right around 11.20. So we're sitting in my office, and I'm getting ready to welcome him, you know, the Columbine family and, you know, Rebels for Life and the whole thing. And... To this day, I don't know if I ever offered him a contract, but he's still working there uh, because the reason being is my secretary comes running towards the door. My door shut and there's a little window and I still remember it so vividly. She face planted that little window and I knew something was wrong. So she opened the door and she said, Frank, you know, there's been a report of gunfire and bombs exploding. I said, no, this, this has got to be a senior prank. We're a month away from graduation until I came out of my office. And all of a sudden, my worst nightmare became a reality because about 100 yards away, there's a gunman coming towards me. And I went through something later that I learned was fight, flight and freeze. And I thought I walked very calmly down, but I sprinted towards a gunman. And I don't remember sprinting. And I remember when my secretary, uh, Susan White and Kiki Leba, who was the teacher with me, when they saw me on the street a few hours later, they were shocked because the last time they saw me, I was running towards gunfire. People said, and I, I remember everything just slowing down, and I kept thinking in my mind, you know, what is it going to feel like to have a bullet pierce my body? Because I had never been put in a situation like that. And then I had people say, Frank, you're unarmed. Why would you sprint towards a gunman? And one reason and one reason only, my kids were in trouble. I had about 20, 25 girls that were coming out of the locker room to go to a physical education class. They were unaware of what was happening. They were just going to be in the crossfire. 
And back in the day, we're talking 1999, the only drills we did back in 1999 were fire drills. That's it. You know, now we do these lockdown drills, uh, you know, locks light out of sight. Now, those were the only drills, but I also knew, and I was familiar with the facility, that if I got him into the gym and pulled the doors behind him, eventually I can put him in a secure place, check to make sure it was okay to get him outside and then get him out. Everything was going as planned. And I remember what the gunman was wearing. I remember the a shotgun that he was pointing at me in the, uh, well, the gun looked about the size of the cannon and glass was shattering behind me. And all of a sudden the girls start screaming. And I said, we got a plan. We got a plan. And then I pull on the gymnasium door. It's locked. And we're trapped in this little alcove. And girls were praying. And they said, Mr. D, Papa D, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And uh, I literally had about 25 or 30 keys on a key ring. And I had a suit on that day. And I reached in my pocket. And as the gunman is coming around the corner and we hear the shots getting closer and boots on the ground, I reach in my pocket and the first key I stick in the door and open it on the first try. And if I was not able to do that, there's no chance I'd be doing this interview and those girls would not be with us. It was from there, um, we got the girls inside and I locked them into a storage area. And I said, I'm gonna go outside and I will be back for you. So I go out and the police are arriving Please cover me. And I go back in the building to get the girls. And then I was going to go back in and the police said, no one's going back in until SWAT arrives. And so that's what happened. And from that point on, I was helping the police, you know, come up with plans, identifying kids and things of that. It's something I was never prepared for. Wow. So <clears throat> I noticed, I watched a few interviews last night with you um, online. And I, I noticed something in one of them. And I'm curious whether this is something you do consciously or maybe just did in one interview. But I've noticed that when you talk about the students, you always talk about your students with great affection. And you, when you talk about specific ones, you refer to them by first name. But when you talk about the gunman, you call them the gunman or you um, refer to them by last name. Is that something you do consciously? Yes, I do. And the reason I do it is when I go out and do presentations, and I did this early on, when you ask people, identify names with Columbine, they're able to name the two killers. Yeah. But they would have, a, they'd be hard pressed to name the 13, my beloved 13, my 12 students and Mr. Sanders. And so whenever I do a presentation, the first thing I do is I have a slide, a picture of each, because when people, and I end my presentation with that, because I want people to know who the 13 were. They didn't have a choice that day. The other two killers, and they were my students, and they died, but they had a choice of what they did that day. And I make sure every day before my feet hit the ground, I recite the names of my 13, and they give me the reason to do what I do. DeAngelis has talked to media outlets all over the world about what he experienced that day. So I wasn't surprised to hear that his decision not to name the gunman was a deliberate one. And out of respect, I won't say their names either. I can't imagine and don't want to imagine what it's like to see a person you once genuinely cared about aiming a gun at you. What I do know is that years later, DeAngelis still has complicated feelings about those kids he once laughed with in the hallway. You know, and the haunting thing is, I think the media portrayed these two as at-risk, out-of-touch students. And the narrative 
was not accurate. And unfortunately, the narrative being played back 23 years later is still not accurate. And so, you know, one of the things that is haunting to me is when people say, well, these kids were at risk, you know, they were not, these were honor students. These were students that were gifted and talented. I remember our junior senior prom was on Saturday night. I think that the date would have been April 17th. I'm at the dance and Klebold comes up to me and he's with four other couples. They're high-fiving me dancing. You know, later I go to after prom, Klebold shows up with his date. Harris is there. They're playing, you know, video or playing games and things, knowing that in three days or on the 20th, they were placing bombs in that school. They were going to kill as many people as possible. So these were cold-hearted killers. And the one thing that really haunts me, and I don't know if I'll ever have an answer, and I think with all these shootings occurring, the same question comes up, because I saw these kids when they were little kids, you know, Cleve Bolton Harris, they were in their soccer uniforms, you know, seven, eight years old, nine years old. They had smiles with missing teeth. And then I saw the one pointing a gun at me and I'm saying, what is, what happened from the time they were seven or eight years old until the time they turned 17 and carried out this act of terrorism. And I don't know if there's answers for that. The Columbine massacre was the first tragedy since TWA 800 that hit the headlines just as hard. I was in my junior year of college and have vivid memories of walking into my off-campus apartment to find my roommate watching it unfold on the news. Kids were running out of the school with their hands on their heads. Parents were tearfully looking for their children. Like the rest of the world, I was horrified. But there was something else, too, and it made me turn off the TV that day and walk out of the room anytime Columbine came up in conversation over the next several weeks. Because as a makeshift memorial began to take shape in nearby Clement Park, grieving kids were now targets of story-hungry reporters. Watching the coverage felt like endorsement, and I couldn't do it. From what I heard from DeAngelis, his school's experience with the media was very similar to mine. Media just started invading. National media, there were trucks, satellite dishes, and uh, there was John Tomlin's truck, and people turned that into with flowers and messages, and there were all kinds of things, and that was a place for people to heal. And people were looking for things to do. But at the same time, it just became overwhelming. Uh, students, um, the media just invaded. And at times, the last thing you want when this is happening is someone sticking a microphone in your face. You talk to people now that were part of the communities. There are certain things that trigger emotions. Um, helicopters flying over because they were hovering over media and we did a very good job to protect our students, you know, from the media. But the thing that we could not protect them is the media knew where kids, whether it be a Starbucks or a restaurant or things. And, and, it, and I saw the best of people, but at the same time, I saw some things that uh, there were media sources that were asking kids, they would give them $50 to carry a camcorder into the school when we went to Chatfield to videotape or they were looking to purchase yearbooks because our yearbooks had just come out and there were pictures of the two killers of the yearbook. And they were offering kids, you know, hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars. They, they were putting things on eBay, looking for Columbine t-shirts and things. And so it, it really, I saw a different side that I was never ready to deal with. I share my own story with everyone I talk to for this podcast, 
So DeAngelis knew about TWA 800 and Montoursville going into this interview. It wasn't a focus, but I couldn't ignore how what had happened at Columbine had given me perspective as I continued to grieve my classmates. Because the truth was, I felt lucky. After the crash, I thought Montoursville had been through the worst thing a school community could. But watching those kids on the news running out of their school, running in terror from kids they'd grown up with, I knew that what we'd experienced couldn't even compare. But when I told that to DeAngelis, he went into teacher mode pretty fast to tell me I needed to change my thinking. I remember that, you know, my friends were reaching out to me saying, are you okay? Because they knew that I had lost classmates in a tragic way. Um, and I was, you know, like I said, I just, I just felt, I felt lucky that what we had experienced was, was not, not the same. Um, At timeout. And I'm going to share something with you. Okay. It's not a competition who suffered more because I get that so often what you felt is, is devastating. And a lot of times it puts me in an awkward spot. The first thing they say, Frank, you don't understand. We didn't lose 13. Well, I don't care if you lost someone or not, what you went through and what you encountered is going to affect you. And so it's not a competition. You know, pain is pain. Suffering is suffering. And I make sure that I tell people that because I've had more come up saying, well, we didn't have anyone injured. It, you know, we, it shouldn't be who suffers more because you lost 13 or 21 or whatever the case may be. What you went through, I can identify. It was tough. And don't ever feel, well, I feel bad saying, no, what you went through was real. And when these events happen, and I think I'll get, if you don't have my number, I'll give you my number. Whenever you need to call or talk, I'm there. That night, uh, my wife and I, my kids could not go back to the house. The FBI was concerned about my safety and welfare. So I was able to go get some clothes for the next day because I had to address everybody afterwards. But I'm sitting at my brother's house and I remember saying, you know, I heard there were so many different reports coming out, 25 died, 13 died, things of that nature. And I said, there's nothing I can do to bring them back, but I'm going to make sure I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure they didn't die in vain. And one of the most difficult things for me is at night when, after I left the streets near Columbine, I had to go down to the elementary school and that's what they refer to now as a reunification center. And all of a sudden, as the night went on, there were fewer parents there, and the parents were coming up and saying, Mr. D, did you see my son or die? I had not. And a parent comes up to me and said, Frank, you know, for about the last five hours, there's been yellow school buses transporting the kids from Columbine down, and we haven't seen any school buses. And that's when a grief counselor came over and said, Frank, you need to take these family members in and tell them there's a good chance their loved one died in your school that day. And that was something to this day uh, I still get. Um, it's pretty emotional. DeAngelis doesn't remember the bear. And it's no wonder, considering the mountain of messages and items sent to Columbine. The Denver Post article I mentioned earlier was mainly about the local park district seeking space for all the items that arrived in the aftermath. DeAngelis received many letters personally, but didn't read them until three years later. His focus was his community, and his community was in agony. We did not go back to Columbine because the building was in pretty bad shape, but we had about a month left. And so Chatfield High School, which was one of our sister schools, it was about six miles west. 
Um, we waited two weeks to go back because we had 13 memorial services. And the last thing I wanted our kids to have to do and our staff to do is go to a memorial service and go to class. So we waited a couple of weeks. So we go back to Chatfield, I think it was May 4th. And our parents decided they wanted to welcome the kids back. And they put this beautiful archway of blue and silver balloons, our school colors. And all of a sudden balloons started popping. Kids started diving on the ground. And that's when I said, what are we getting into? You know, or a fire alarm would go off. And these kids, we would have meltdowns and triggers. And so I realized that things were going to change. I remember getting a phone call from Bill Bond, and he was at Keith High School in Paducah, Kentucky, where a shooting had occurred in 1997. And he called me and he told me who he was. And he said, Frank, you don't even know what you need right now, but here's my phone number. Call me. And he's one of my dearest friends. And so that was a lesson for me. So now when these events happen, whether it be a school shooting, church shooting, we had a supermarket shooting up here in Boulder, Colorado, I reach out and just to say that I know what you're going through. And it's not that it's because of me, it's because of the, what I went through. This is what I mean when I say that this story is bigger than a teddy bear. It turns out almost no one remembers. Frank DeAngelis remembers that phone call. He remembers the people who showed up to do the hard work with him. And that's what he's trying to pay forward today. What the priest told me that night is he said, Frank, you should have died, but God's got a plan. Now you need to go rebuild that community and help others. And that's why 23 years later, I'm having this conversation with you and why I reach out to people because I uh, don't know I, I was chosen, but I was and I survived. And so I promised until the day I die, I'm going to help as many people as possible. So I'm doing my very best. So this is where I tell you everything else I know about that teddy bear I spotted long ago. It traveled from Colorado to Wedgwood Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas, after a gunman killed eight people, including himself. I wasn't able to get anyone from the church to talk to me for this podcast, but they did send me a photo of the bear, which you can see on our Instagram. From Wedgwood, the bear went to Santana High School in Santee, California, where a student killed two people in 2001. The current principal, who was there at the time, said he remembered a few bears but didn't recognize the one in the photo. He's asking around, but with more than 20 years between then and now, I'm not hopeful. DeAngelis retired as principal of Columbine in 2014, after every student who had been in the district at the time of the shootings had graduated. He's still very connected to Columbine and works to help others affected by tragedy to rebuild their own communities. When he finally opened those letters that had poured in in 1999, he found one from his high school sweetheart, and long story short, they've been married 20 years now. When he proposed, it was with flowers and, you guessed it, a teddy bear. And if you're wondering whether he made good on his promise to give me his number, he did. Last July 17th, the anniversary of the TWA 800 crash, I texted and asked him to take a moment to think of Montoursville's 21. He shared with me that at a recent remembrance ceremony in Colorado, he'd read the names of what he calls his beloved 13. When he finished, a rainbow appeared. Never give up hope, he told me. Wise words from a man who once schooled me in an interview. Maybe we'll find that bear after all. Home. I can hear